Today's scripture comes from Book of Luke, uh, chapter 24 and 25, Revelation um, chapter 10. Follow on your bulletins uh, or your mobile devices. Here's a word of God. Now that the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But as they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and they disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were, we, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went, on, went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. This word of God. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, New Mercy here in, in Hackensack. Uh, for those of you who weren't able to make it last, sun, last Sunday, we, we had actually an amazing joint service at the Hilton in, in Hasbrook Heights. Uh, all the sites and services of New Mercy, we have sites in Hackensack and, and Edgewater. We all got together and we, we worshipped and we broke bread and we kicked off 2017 as, as one body. And uh, it was awesome. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was very powerful. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite services in, in the calendar year. Uh, we, we do this annually. Uh, if you missed it, you can uh, ask anybody who went, and they'll, they'll tell you all about it, or you can listen to the message online. The message doesn't really contain everything that we did, so it's best to probably talk to somebody who went. Now, you know, one of the things we did at the service is we re- revealed the new vision uh, for our church. It's actually more of an evolution, but it's new. And uh, what I wanted to do at the beginning of today's sermon is I just want to take a few minutes to recap some of what Pastor Wanjay shared in his vision talk. You know, it helps to repeat these things uh, so it really kind of gets into our culture. If you guys know anything about vision statements, you know, you constantly have to repeat these things. So uh, our vision at New Mercy uh, has always been to be a church for the broken, right? To be embracing of everyone, 
no matter you know what they're struggling with, no matter uh, what their past is like, the gospel says Jesus came for all broken people, right? Which is which is all of us in here, and for all parts of these broken people. You know, people aren't all broken in the same exact way. You know, some people have mental illness, some people relational issues, uh, physical, uh, maybe economic or social. Jesus came for all of that. Okay, we shouldn't stigmatize one over the other, which actually some churches uh, actually tend to do. Some, for example, mental illness will be something, I don't know if we really can uh, tackle that. Uh, but, you know, we be- at New Mercy believe everybody who's broken and all forms of brokenness are welcome here. So basically at New Mercy, we're simply trying to continue the legacy that Jesus started. And that's why we call ourselves a church for the broken. Now, you know, of course, we haven't done this perfectly uh, we've, we've made mistakes, uh, and we're s- still growing and developing in this way. But this has been the tone of our church uh, and our culture. You know, our, our counseling program, we have a full counseling program here at our church. Our missions, our, our family groups, our preaching, our, our services, our um, you know, justice and mercy ministries have all been shaped by this vision. Okay? We want to build a place where broken, messed up people could come and experience God as they are. However, the vision was never only about embracing people. See, implicit in our vision was that being a church for the broken is also about growing people out of their brokenness. Not just accepting people and then, you know, leaving them in the brokenness. No. To be a church for the, for the broken also means we've got to help and to grow broken people that we embrace. Yes, the gospel says, you know, the gospel says Jesus accepts us as we are. That's absolutely clear. But the gospel also says that he doesn't leave us as we are. The gospel isn't the gospel without both of these things. And, you know, we've certainly taught this in our church, and we've built ministries around helping people grow out of their brokenness. But what we found is that that's not good enough. One of the things we often hear from people in, in our church, especially as we challenge people to mature and to grow, is that, for lack of a better phrase, they want to be left alone. They'll say something along the lines of, hey, I'm broken. I'm a work in progress. You know, we're, we're a church for the broken. And they, they just kind of coast in their Christian lives thinking that it's okay to be this way because, again, we're a church for the broken. Let's just be broken. Uh, and unfortunately, what's happened is that this culture has taken root in some parts of our church. And that's not correct. Okay, wallowing and complacency in our brokenness is not what the gospel teaches, okay? Also, and this is uh, true for most churches, one of the things that surveys have found is that after a number of years at a church, if a person feels like they're not growing, what happens is they eventually grow disillusioned with the church and with their faith. These surveys actually show that many Christians want to grow, They want to see progress. They want discipleship in their lives. And if they don't get it, or if it's not clear how they're supposed to grow at a church, they become disillusioned. And so because of these things and other reasons, we realize we have to make the growth aspect of our faith, the renewal aspect, front and center in our vision. This way we'll always remember that this restoration aspect of our faith is absolutely an essential part of what we're aiming for as believers and as a church You know, if you think about it, if we just accept people without growing them, we're actually just a group of enablers. And so through much prayer and much thought, we evolved our vision, which is that we are now a church for the broken, which we didn't change, called 
to restoration, which do we have actually that slide? Can we do the uh, church for the broken call to restoration slide? There we go. Okay. So that's our new logo and that's our new uh, vision statement. Church for the broken call to restoration. Uh, And because this is now baked into our vision, not only will you not forget it, okay, our vision statements aren't very long because we know people forget these things, right? So we want to make it short. You're not going to forget it. But as a church, just as we forced ourselves to build around the prior vision, we will force ourselves to build around this one as well. Now, for those of you who've understood that growth was implicit in our previous vision, One of the problems that you uh, probably encountered as you tried to grow is that it wasn't clear to you how you were supposed to go about doing that in our church, right? And we we completely hear that criticism. You know, like many churches, we're guilty of having an a la carte approach to discipleship, right? We offer different things, and essentially, we leave it up to you to piece together what you think you need. But the problem is, We as Christians, as individuals, we don't always know what we need, right? If you're in the process of growing, you don't always know what you need. And this is why when you look at the Gospels, when Jesus restores people, he doesn't leave figuring out that restoration process up to the people or up to chance. To grow people, Jesus is very intentional. In an intimate group, he walks with them, counsels them, and disciples them. Jesus makes it very clear what needs to be done to grow. And Jesus tells and commissions the church to do the same as what he did. And so what we've developed at New Mercy is what we're calling the quote-unquote path to restoration. Basically, the path to restoration is this year-long discipleship group, which we'll meet every week with obviously some breaks. And this cohort, right, cohort's the name of the the small group that you, whoever, whichever part, uh, whichever group you're a part of will be in. Uh, this will consist of no more than three to five people, okay? And this cohort, we're going to cover teachings from three main categories. If we can throw the first slide up there. Oh, actually, I guess you guys didn't get my message last night. You can take that off. <laughs> There's three main categories, okay? Uh, the first category is spiritual life. The second category is soul care. And the third category is Christian living. And under these three main categories, there's, there's subtopics. For example, under spiritual life, there are topics like uh, prayer, uh, reading scripture, worship. Under soul care, there's uh, inner healing, uh, repentance, forgiveness. Under Christian living, there's, a, there's character, there's relationships, stewardship, community, vocation, and so on. There's, there's more than that, but those are just a few examples. Okay? What the staff has done is we've uh, actually written a year-long curriculum that each of these cohorts are going to go through with their disciples. And the disciples this year, disciplers this year are going to be the pastors. On top of this, in these cohorts, a big part of the growth will involve the people being discipled, counseling each other, processing together, and challenging each other, and so on. And then after a year, uh, leaders who have been developed through this process will start leading their own groups, which will lead to growth at another level. And the more we do this, the more we'll have more people that can do this and really uh, reach everybody in the church. Now, of course, I mean, the, the, the term path to restoration is a little bit presumptuous. You're not going to be restored after one year, obviously. Okay? Uh, restoration is a lifelong process. But after going through this, we believe that you'll be well on your way and that you'll have learned the core things you need to know in order to keep growing as a Christian. We really believe that. And before you think that you don't need this, realize that not only do the pastors 
uh, realize that they themselves need this. But more importantly, if you actually do think you don't need this, that's probably one of the best indicators that you do. Okay, there is profound stuff that Jesus teaches about discipleship, and I promise you, you have barely even begun to scratch the surface. Okay? So that's a path to restoration. We're going to be starting uh, groups in April. Uh, I hope you guys are excited. Uh, for, those of who, for those of you who can't do cohorts this year, uh, because, you know, we have a limited number of pastors, we can't get to everybody. For those of you who can't do cohorts this year, we're not going to just leave the rest of you to rot or, you know, to, we're not going to put you in a holding pattern. As Jesus discipled a few, he also taught the larger groups to grow as well. So what we're doing at New Mercy is we're building our preaching, our courses, and our worship around the categories in the path to restoration so that we as a community are always being challenged to grow and to develop. I mean, even those who graduate from these cohorts, they will need a steady diet for growth as well. And our church will provide that for everyone year after year. And if you're worried that this is going to be forced on you, no need to worry. Okay, none of this is required. It really isn't. Okay, we're not going to be, oh, if you don't do it, we hate you. No, okay, you don't have to do it. Okay? But if you want to grow, we believe this will really make a dramatic difference in your life because we're basically just building it around Jesus' model of discipleship. Okay, now that I've reviewed all that, let me dive into today's talk, which, by the way, is abbreviated to fit in our time slot, if you believe me. Um, so to kick off our new vision, uh, we're, we're making it our theme for 2017, okay? This year is a year we will focus on what it means to be called to restoration as individuals and as a community. And as we do every year, our first series is going to focus primarily on this theme. Now, in this kickoff series, uh, what the pastors are going to do is they're going to preach sermons from each of the three categories of Christian growth that we've laid out in our path to restoration, spiritual life, soul care, and Christian living. And the reason why we're doing this is we want to give you a sense of what these categories are about and why they're important for your growth and your restoration. So starting with this week and going into the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the topics under the category of spiritual life. And then the following three weeks will be under soul care, and the following three weeks after that or more will be under uh, uh, Christian living. My topic today under the category of spiritual life is God's word. God's word. Now, some of you are probably like, here we go. Pastor Key is going to tell me that in order to grow, I need to read the Bible. I already know that, Pastor Key, but it's just hard to do. I've got a busy life. But friends, I actually don't think we know really why it's so important. And that's one of the reasons why many of us don't do it. Today, what I want to try to do is I want to help you see God's word in ways that you've probably never considered before. And after that, I think you'll begin to see why God's word is something you need in order to grow. But I also think you'll see why God's word is something that you probably actually want to get more into in your life. So let me start. So for modern people, uh, when it comes to reading, right, especially with the proliferation of the web, which exposes us to unbelievable amounts of information, our tendency is to try to be efficient. Right? We'll skim an article, uh, and as we do that, we'll pick out information or ideas that we'd like, uh, and we use that information however we please. Now, you know, obviously, this doesn't apply when we read fiction, but for most of our other reading, it does. 
And what's happened is this approach has seeped into how we read the Bible. For example, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, right, you try to get through a number of chapters a day. And as you do that, you highlight a couple of verses here and there that you like, and then you're just kind of done with it. Now, that's not necessarily wrong, okay? It's helpful to get a broad sweep of of what the Bible says, and reading through it quickly can help you do that. There's nothing wrong with acquainting yourself with the content and information of the Bible in that way. I personally do a Bible reading plan like this using the Bible app on my phone. I know many of you do that as well. But if you want spiritual transformation and growth, this type of informational reading is only going to get you so far. So, how do we read for spiritual transformation then? Well, part of it, uh, before I get into the method, is to understand the value of the words reading. See, how you value something affects your approach and handling of that thing. When you see why something is important, you tend to read it with greater care. So, I want to spend a few minutes on this because I think it will really set our hearts and our posture before the Word of God in a good way. In fact, I think it'll actually get you excited about reading the Word of God. So when you uh, enter the world of the Bible, one of the most fascinating things about that world is what it believes about words. You know, the things that come out of our mouths when we talk, right? How the biblical world treats and thinks about Uh, things about words is actually so remarkable and so profound that even to this day, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. See, to us, at first blush, when we think about the concept of words, it doesn't really strike us as the most interesting topic, right? I mean, if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, let's have a conversation about linguistics, your eyes would glaze over, right? Or you just want to hide from that person. Right? The topic just doesn't strike us as something interesting or important. I mean, words are just words. Every day we throw them around like they're nothing. You know, after we utter them, they're just these wispy things that just kind of disappear into the air. In fact, when we just kind of casually think about words, what strikes us most about them is usually nothing. Right? They're just these mundane things that people use to communicate, whether it's verbally or in writing. Okay? But here's the thing. If I were to just push you just a little bit to think about the importance of words, and it doesn't really take that much thought to realize this, it would hit you how incredibly powerful words actually are. I mean, words are so familiar to us. They're so common that we take them for granted. And very often, we forget what incredible things they actually are and how powerful they can be. That is, until you have an experience where someone says something hurtful to you. And then immediately, you're reacquainted with how significant words really are, right? William Barclay, he's a commentator. This is what he writes. If you can get the first slide up there. Uh, He says, a leader coins a phrase and it becomes a trumpet call which kindles men to crusades or to crimes. Okay, that's the right slide. Okay. Uh, Some great men uh, sends forth a manifesto and it produces action which can make or destroy nations. When John Knox preached in the days of the Reformation in Scotland, it was said that the voice of one man put more courage into the hearts of his hearers and 10,000 trumpets braying in their ears. His words did things to people. In the days of the Second World War, when Britain was bereft of allies and of weapons, the words of the Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill, as he broadcast to the nation, did things to people. Over and over again in history, the spoken word of some leader or thinker has gone out and done things. Okay? And it, 
It doesn't have to be a leader or someone significant. It can be anybody in your life. You know, some random person can come up to me and say that I'm ugly, right? Or, or they may say after the service today that my sermon was terrible. And those words will affect me probably for the rest of the day, if not the week. And all of you guys know of stories where a person grew up hearing that they, they were worthless or stupid or not good enough. And how those words profoundly impacted and shaped that person in the trajectory of their life. I have a friend who was told always when he was younger that he was too skinny. And that really got into him. He was constantly like, oh, I'm so skinny. So he started working out like a crazy man. And he got huge, right? And he looks in the mirror, even to this day, he's big. He looks in the mirror, he's like, I'm too skinny. I'm like, What? That's how much words shaped his thinking. Whether we like it or not, words matter, and they are powerful. Words affect us. In fact, words form us. Like I said, they can literally shape who we are. They can get inside of us and reconfigure everything we believe about ourselves and about reality. So when you sit down and actually think about it, words are very potent things. They're not something that should be trifled with. And that's actually something uh, many of us need to remember, especially when we speak to people or about people or even in our Facebook comments. Words are powerful. Whoever said, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, clearly had no idea what they were talking about. But see, the Bible actually takes the power of words even further than that. In fact, I would say the Bible takes it much much further. See, according to the Bible, words are not just powerful in the ways that I just described. No, in the Bible, words are concrete, reality-shaping entities that have such force and weightiness and life to them that God not only takes them more seriously than almost anything else, but he employs them as his primary tools in creation, in redemption, and in the renewing and restoration of our lives. William Barclay, he says this, To the Jew, a word was far more than a mere sound. It was something which had an independent existence and which actually did things. The spoken word to the Hebrew was fearfully alive. It was a unit of energy charged with power. It flies like a bullet to its target. Let me give you a few examples just so you can get a sense of what I'm talking about. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, let, me, let me give you a few examples, okay? So in the Old Testament, there's a place where Jacob deceives his father Isaac into giving him his brother Esau's blessing, right? Some of you guys might know this story. Now, when Esau and Isaac find out what Jacob did, they're both really upset. And Esau begs his father to fix it. But you know what Isaac tells his distraught son Esau? You know what he says? He tells him that there's actually nothing he can do to take the words back. Because according to a commentator, Isaac's word had gone out and had begun to act, and nothing could stop it. You see that? Something about words. They're not things that you can just say and take back. Hey, there's a life and a force and a substance to them that modern people simply don't get. In fact, we've trivialized words so much that we feel we can just say them and throw them around, just, you know, take them back and whatever. But Jesus says in Matthew, these are his words. Jesus says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. 
That's how serious words are in the Bible. But there's more. And this is actually one of the more mind-bending teachings in the Bible. See, according to the Bible, God's words, unlike human words, can actually create out of nothing. God's words are so potent that they themselves can actually bring about and shape reality. The words uttered from God's mouth literally have a creative force to them. In Genesis, when God creates a world in chapter 1, he says, the word, and it happens. In Psalm 33, this is what, what it says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. There's no intermediary process, okay? There's no intermediate process. Um, in fact, all throughout the Bible, we see God's words themselves causing things to happen. Psalm 147.15 says this, He sends his command to earth, his words runs swiftly, or his word runs swiftly. And then in Isaiah 55, it says, My word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And then from Hebrews 4, in the New Testament, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's basically saying God's word is alive and it's penetrating to the deepest level. I mean, that's some pretty amazing stuff. And this is not just metaphor, guys. You're like, oh, that's metaphor. No, this is not just metaphor. When you read the Bible, one of the things that is clear as day is that God's words are so alive and dynamic and concrete that somehow, in ways our minds cannot even begin to imagine, those words go out and actually bring about his will and manifest his power. Okay, we have no idea what the mechanism is, but God's words are so potent and so real and, again, so alive that they can create and change reality. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that the word of God itself is God. In John chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this word, okay, his identity is Jesus. John says later on in verse 14 in that same chapter, chapter the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. I mean, that's some crazy stuff. Look, I can go on and on. I mean, I've just barely even scratched the surface, but I hope even in just a little bit that I've said about this, I hope it's what your appetite, a little bit, okay? And you see why God's words are so important. Okay, the Word of God is not something that you want to overlook. I mean, considering the seriousness with which God treats not only our words, but especially His words, it would be a mistake for us to treat them as casually and as flippantly as we do. That we actually view God's Word as non-essential goes to show how little, in fact, we understand the nature of God and the nature of His words. Brothers and sisters, there is something so central so mysteriously powerful about God's words that we ignore them to our own peril. In fact, what should give us the most pause is not just the power of God's word, but the fact that Jesus says, without them, we humans cannot live. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, what does he say? 
this is what Jesus says. He says, it is written, man shall, shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, we, we've all heard those words before, right? In fact, they're so familiar that we almost forget who uttered them. Jesus uttered those words. God uttered those words. The one who created us, the one who knows far better than we do exactly what we need in order to thrive as people. Without a hint of exaggeration, Jesus says more important to life than food is the word of God. Now, when you take that, and you combine it with the power that I've been talking about with regard to God's words, are you beginning to sense why the reading of Scripture is so important? This is why the apostles, if you read the New Testament, this is why the apostles dedicated their lives to teaching and preaching the words of God. And this is why the New Testament says the early church devoted themselves to these words. Because they are life. Brothers and sisters, what we have captured in the Bible in written form, are the words of God. Now, yes, the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is the Bible, was written by people. But in Christian theology, there's this doctrine called the inspiration of Scripture. Okay? And what that doctrine teaches is that for some reason, God used people as his vehicles to write Scripture. He inspired them through the Holy Spirit. Now, they weren't always aware that they were writing Scripture, but they... God still worked through them. Now, some people might, might be like, oh, that's just a doctrine that Christians made up to give these human words legitimacy as Scripture. But that's actually not true. Because, first of all, Jesus himself believed and taught that the Old Testament Scriptures were the words of God. I mean, Jesus very much knew that humans participated in the process of writing and forming these words, but he says they are still the words of God. So Jesus also believed and taught the inspiration of Scripture. In fact, you would have to say that Jesus, being God, probably has a much better vantage point than we do. See, because Jesus is God, he's the one, he's the one who decided to incorporate humans in the writing of his words. And he knows far better than us the process that was involved. And he says it is through this process that God's words have been revealed and made accessible to us. So Jesus is, is saying in the Old Testament, we have the God's words for us. But what about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, what we have are these gospels and these letters that were also written uh, by people. And these people are people who had access to the words and teachings of Jesus Christ, the actual Jesus Christ. And so these writings contain what theologians call the apostolic deposit. Okay, which basically means this. After Jesus resurrects, right, he comes back to life, but before he returns to the Father, Jesus commissions and gives authority to his apostles to make disciples by teaching them his teachings. What we have deposited in the New Testament in written form is the apostles' authoritative teachings commissioned by Jesus Christ. Okay, so basically, in the New Testament, we have access to the teachings of Jesus Christ himself as he taught them to uh, his apostles. That's why they call it the apostolic deposit. Inside the New Testament, we have deposited in there the apostolic authority and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And when you look at history, okay, when you see, uh, what you see is that f almost from the very beginning, churches were using 
a lot of these writings from the New Testament as scripture because they understood that they contained the teaching and words of Christ, that they were inspired. So these writings, along with the Old Testament, are the words of God to us. Now, you know, there's a lot I can say about the inspiration of scripture, uh, but let me just say this. Personally, I believe the inspiration of scripture is a remarkable and a profoundly beautiful doctrine. I mean, think about it. Think about what it means. For some reason, God wanted to include us in the process of delivering his words. And, you know, we see this tendency of God, you know, using us to do things that he could probably do much better by himself. We see this tendency all throughout the Bible, right? God uses prophets to deliver his decrees. God uses regular, ordinary believers to share the good news of Jesus. God uses people as vehicles to bring about hope and healing. Most of the time when you read the Bible, instead of doing things directly, God always is using people. And this is why St. Augustine writes these words. He writes, without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. Over and over, one of the clearest patterns you see in the Bible is that God wants to use people to accomplish his work and his will. Okay? He wants us to participate in what he's doing. Why? Well, I think part of it is as a father, he simply wants his children, as I said, to be part of his work. You know, part of the point of humanity is that we would be people who labor with him in accomplishing, uh, in the accomplishing of his will in the universe. God doesn't want just passive, do-nothing beings. That's not why he created us. He wants us to engage, he wants to engage us, and he wants to use us. And God actually finds that process much more beautiful than him simply doing it by himself. In Romans, Paul writes this. He writes, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? See, God using somebody. How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, part of the beauty of Scripture is that it has been delivered by the feet of humanity. And while, you know, when we read scripture, we see this interplay of the human author and the divine author. You know, we see both the human footprints and the divine footprints. And the final product, that tension of the human and the divine, that tension actually reveals the heart and purposes and the personality of God far more than if these words had just fallen out of the sky. A large part of what makes Scripture so beautiful and so relatable is that God integrated humanity in the content and in the process. I mean, try reading the whole range of human emotion. I mean, literally, the book of Psalms contained the whole range of human emotions. Read it. There are Psalms that curse God. All of that's in there, the human element. Or read, try to read the struggle of Paul as he's wrestling with the really screwed up Corinthian church. Or try reading the narratives, um, dealing with humans, wrestling with their sin and brokenness. In all those texts, you see the human element and the divine element wrapped up in a package that reveals the gospel and the heart of God far more than if the Bible simply contained divine decrees. Okay, so knowing all this, what are we supposed to do? You remember Jesus' words, right? Man shall not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you want to live and grow and be restored, you need much more than the wisdom of the world. Hopefully you've already learned that. You need much more than food and water. What you need is the life-giving, powerful words of God inside of you doing their work. That's what you need. Eugene Peterson uh, is a Christian author. This is what he writes. Next slide. Christians feed on Scripture. Holy Holy Scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love. I just love how he describes it. So how do we do that? How do we consume Scripture so that we assimilate it in the way that Eugene Peterson describes? Well, the primary method the Bible teaches is through the practice of meditating on Scripture. If you look in the Psalms, the psalmists are constantly saying how they find delight in meditating on God's laws, His words, His decrees, and His works. Now, a bunch of you are like, oh, no, here we go, meditation, this should be fun. And honestly, you know, that was my initial reaction, too. Uh, But then I started reading about what Scripture meditation actually is, and it's not what you think. In fact, it's actually become something that I've discovered is not only easy to do, but it's something that's exciting, something that's heart-filling, like nothing I've ever experienced before. And something that's life-changing. See, there's a place in uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, where it describes a lion growling over its dead prey. Okay, there's, a, there's a, you know, words describing a lion growling over its prey. Now, when you read that, you're like, okay, what's that have to do with anything? Well, if you look in the Hebrew, what you discover is the word that's used for the lion growling over his prey, that word is the same word that the Bible uses for meditate. If you ever watched uh, those nature documentaries, you know, after a lion kills its prey and starts, you know, gnawing on one of the legs or something, right? One of the things that you'll notice is that there's this low growling, okay, that the lion gives out intermittently as he slowly works on his meal. Dogs actually do something similar with their bones. I remember when I used to have a dog. It was actually my sister's dog. Um, I would sometimes give it one of those chew bones that you get from stores, right? Uh, And when it would get that bone, it would usually go off somewhere, and it would just lay down, and it would just start methodically working on the bone. And it would do that for hours, and as it did that, you, you would hear that low growling intermittently. Okay? And it was a growling of satisfaction and delight. Now, what's the lesson here? That image of a lion getting lost in his prey or a dog getting lost in his bone, growling in satisfaction over them, that's what meditation is. Meditation is simply the image of a child of God getting lost in God's words. Now, when you see a lion or a dog, quote-unquote, meditating over its prey, does it look like they're having a dreadful time? 
No. They love it so much that they get lost in it. When you actually start meditating on Scripture in this way, I believe you're going to find yourself delighting in it and getting lost in it as well. Toward the end of uh, one of Tim Keller's recent books, he shares about this one experience that he says says changed his life. And uh, I wanted to relay this experience because I think it will help you get a sense of what meditating on, on Scripture actually looks like. So when Tim was much younger, he was at a Christian conference, and he said that one of the speakers asked the people who were listening to do an exercise. And the exercise was this. They were to take Mark chapter 1, verse 17, which reads, Come, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And they were to sit with that text for 30 minutes, and they were to write down 30 things that they learned from that text. And the speaker said, uh, or the speaker, she told them, you know, after 10 minutes, you're probably going to be tempted to think that you've learned all that you could from this verse. But she says to them, she said to them, keep working on it regardless for the whole 30 minutes and try to write down 30 things. Just give it a try. You'll see why in a little bit. Well, Tim shares, honestly, he says that after 10 minutes, he thought he was done. And he's like, I learned everything I need to know about this. Ten minutes, right? And so he's tempted to, you know, use the rest of the time to daydream. But when he looked around, he saw that everybody else seemed to be still working. So he decided to keep at it. And what he uh, shares is that as he reread the verse multiple times, as he turned the words over in his mind, he began to see things that uh, or about the text that he didn't see before. And the longer he sat with it, the more he began to see. And Tim Keller finishes his account of this experience like this. He says, next slide. At the end of the 30 minutes, the teacher asked us to circle on our papers the best insight or most life-changing thing we had gotten out of the text. Then she said, okay, how many of you found this most incredible life-changing thing in the first five minutes? Nobody raised their hand. Ten minutes? Nobody raised their hand. Fifteen minutes? A few hands. Twenty minutes? few more, 25 minutes, even more. The session, that session changed my attitude toward the Bible, indeed, my life. If you look in Revelation chapter 10, which we read uh, in today's scripture reading, the angel commands John not just to write down the words of God, which actually, if you read the earlier part in chapter 10, uh, John was about to write down these things, but the angel actually stops them. Stops him, or was it God? I forgot who it was, but he's, he's told to stop. Okay? The angel commands John not to just write down the words of God. He commands, all, and, and he also commands John to eat the scroll containing God's words. And when he does that, when he's chewing on it in his mouth, the text says that it tasted sweet. The Bible one of the things you see is that those who've sat down with the Word of God and gnawed at it like a dog gnaws at his bone, the Bible says that these people discover, sometimes unexpectedly, that God's words are in fact sweet and delightful. Psalm 119 verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Brothers and sisters, in order to taste the sweetness for yourself, you also have to sit with these words and chew on them and eat them. Now, some of you are like, oh, but that sounds so hard. But guys, it's actually not. You know what's hard? 
What's hard is the way most of us read Scripture right now. How do we read Scripture? We read chapter after chapter, trying to get through a certain number of chapters each day. Look, like I said, beginning, you know, at the beginning of the sermon, that's not necessarily wrong. Getting a grand sweep of the Bible by reading through it is a helpful exercise. But after you do this type of reading for some time, what starts to happen, and you've probably noticed this, is you start to get tired. You burn out. You get to Leviticus, and you're like, oh, my God. Right? You start to burn out. The words just start falling flat on the page, and you get drowsy, and you start getting frustrated because you're like, what is the point of all this? It's not helping me. I'm not changing. There's, no, there's nothing delightful about all this. Brothers and sisters, you can't read the Bible like that. Okay? If you want to find delight in God's word, if you're going to be changed by God's word, you have to take the advice of the Bible seriously. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says you have to meditate on his words. Okay? You can't delight in something you skim. Right? You need to gnaw on it. Just like a dog as he's working on the bone, he, he gets really familiar with it. That's what you need to do with God's word. You have to chew on it and get it inside of you. You need to feast on it and savor it. There's a reason Jesus likens the word of God to bread. Because it must be ingested for it to do us any good. I mean, look at the Pharisees, Right? The Pharisees heard the words of God directly from Jesus' mouth, and it didn't do anything to change them in the least. Why? Because they didn't eat them. They didn't take them in. They, they, didn't, they, they resisted them. They didn't internalize them. Now someone's like, well, I thought you said God's word is powerful. How did the Pharisees resist them? God's words are powerful. But remember, powerful is not the same thing as forceful. One thing God's word never does is force itself upon you. You are free to reject it. But in rejecting it, you forfeit the experience of its power. Now, in modern times, you know, there are other people who tend to read scripture just to kind of get facts and, you know, learn about the history and stuff like that. That's not going to transform you either, even though you're reading God's word. The good example to think about this is uh, if, say, I write a love letter to my wife. I don't know if I've ever done that. Have, oh, I'm sorry, honey. Uh, or say hypothetically, right? If I were to write a love letter to my wife, somebody can technically take that love letter and analyze it. Oh, he was probably on this type of computer using this font, probably writing it at this time during the day. I can sense what his writing style is like. And he's probably, that's, you can do that with that letter like many people do with the Bible, but that's not going to transform that person, right? A person only begins to see the beauty of the letter. Hopefully, the letter is a beautiful one that I wrote, right? By looking at the content and seeing the intent behind it. And the same thing with the Bible. Friends, once you actually experience what Scripture can do when you take it in, I mean, really take it in, you will find a sweetness to it, and that sweetness will sustain your discipline of reading Scripture far better than anything else you've ever tried before. You know, there's a, woman, there's a Christian woman who started meditating on Scripture, and uh, she shares that what she does is she basically she just picks a small text, nothing too big, and that's one of the beauty th- beauties of um, meditating on scripture. You don't have to read the whole Bible. 
You don't have to even read a chapter. You just take three verses and sit with it for the entire month if you want. Okay, but basically what she shares is she just takes a few verses or a story. And when she first reads it, she just lets the words hit her. And she tries to look at how you know, her heart reacts to the words on the page. And some words probably jump out her at her more than the other words. And she kind of takes note of that in her mind. Right? Then what she does is she, she just lets her mind ponder what she read. And as she watches how the scriptures affect her or the, the verses affect her, she starts exploring and thinking about, hey, why am I being affected in this way by this text? Right? And as she does that, she starts seeing things about her heart, about maybe her day, about herself, and about her circumstances. And sometimes if, if the scripture is a story, uh, what she would do is she would imagine herself, she would use her imagination and imagine herself in that story. And that would lead to more thoughts and feelings. For example, if she, let's say she's meditating on the scripture, uh, on the passage of the Good Samaritan, Right? She would take the Good Samaritan and be like, imagine herself as the person who walks past the person in need. And then she would imagine herself being the person in need. And as she did that, she would do that. She would experience more, in, more and more insight. And now, some of you are like, well, that's imagination. Isn't that bad? You're making up stuff. No. When you use your imagination in conjunction with Scripture, what you're doing is you're letting Scripture guide your imagination to see more truths about God. Okay? And the whole time that you know, she's doing stuff like this, as she experiences her emotions and, and thoughts interact, and her thoughts interacting with God's word, she says that she learns about herself and about her life and about God in ways she never could have if she hadn't attended to Scripture in this way. And what she found, and what I have found, is that when your minds or when our minds and our hearts are interacting with God's words in this way, as things are exposed, as you see new things about. God in your life, what starts to happen is prayers just start flowing out of you without any effort. You know, a lot of you are like, oh man, it's so hard to pray. But when you do scripture meditation like this, what often happens is you're reading the scripture, you're interacting with, and then words start coming like, coming out of you like, oh wow, you know, I didn't realize this about myself, God, and you just start talking to him. You know, just this past week, I was meditating on the first two verses of Psalm 19. This is what the verses read. The verses read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. As I nod on that text, my mind and my heart went on this journey, thinking about creation and how the order of the cosmos, without speaking, speaks of God in ways that boggle the mind. And I thought about how this happens literally every day, literally everywhere we turn. When you look at planet Earth, right? When you look at GPS, you know, you know what it requires to get a GPS to work? It's like amazing, the physics behind it. Right? Everywhere you turn, you see trees, you see, you see people. The knowledge of God is being poured out. And that's why the psalmist uses the word poor. I didn't realize that. I'm like, oh, that's why you use the word, because it's everywhere. Knowledge of God is being poured out everywhere. Right, you know, recently I was playing with my birds. You know, I was trying to raise my these new birds that, that were just born. Right, and I I would watch them eating. And I'm like, wow, it's God, it's amazing, right? And then as I you know was thinking about this this past week, I thought about how much I take this stuff for granted, and I don't see these things on a regular basis, and how I walk past them, and I just 
started praying and thanking God and praising Him and for His amazingness and for speaking to me and for all these things that I didn't notice before. And all of this happened in less than 20 minutes. It wasn't hard. Okay? I just started reading the text, started thinking about it, and I let myself interact with it, and everything just flowed from there. Man, there's, I mean, so much more I can say. I have at least five sermons worth of stuff, but I'm going to have to stop here. Let me finish with three quick thoughts, okay? Revelation 10 in today's text says the sweet words did eventually give John a stomachache. Sometimes God's words will be hard to digest, but they will always be sweet, and they will always give you life. So even when the words are hard, which some of you have probably already experienced, keep at it. Second, someone says, you can do this technique with any book, not just the Bible. Yes. In one sense, you can meditate on any book like the way I just described. That's the power of words. But the actual words you meditate on matter. You will be formed by what you read. And depending on what you read, you will not become the same thing. The source of the words matter. You know, grocery lists, if you meditate on your grocery list, it's not going to change you. Hitler's words will make you into a demon if you meditate on his words. Hurtful words will diminish you. But God's words give life because they come from the author of life. Okay? And they are the best assessment of reality. Okay? They get you in touch with reality inside and out. And they have the added benefit of the Holy Spirit backing them and applying them. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and meant to equip us. Okay, these are not just ordinary words that you're meditating on. And lastly, some of you are thinking to yourself, Pastor Key, you don't understand how busy I am. I literally have no time. Friends, you may feel you don't have the luxury of time, uh, but let me say a couple of things. First, as Bill Hybels says, no matter how busy you are, we always manage to make time for the things we think are important in our lives. But second, whereas we think we don't have the luxury of time, what we actually don't have the luxury to do is to ignore the words of God. For without them, whether we hear them like the early church did or whether we read them, we cannot grow. Now, some of you are like, well, what if I miss a day? What if I miss a week? Well, then you're screwed. No, I'm kidding. No, of course not. It's not about legalism, okay? I miss a week all the time. I'm like, oh, start again, right? And I start again. And then I read, and then, you know, you just keep growing. This is just the process. Brothers and sisters, the, the road to restoration starts with God's word. If you want renewal, Eugene Peterson writes, last slide, get this book into your gut. Get the words of this book moving through your bloodstream. Chew on these words and swallow them so they can be turned into muscle and gristle and bone. Let us bow our heads. If you look at Jesus on the cross, do you see his love for you on the cross? Because that's why he died on the cross. These words in the Bible are about him. The more you consume them, the more you see him. And that's what caused the burning in the hearts of these disciples as they were walking on the road to Emmaus. 
Because as these words were being opened to him, they saw him more and excited them. Brothers and sisters, get these words into you and the Holy Spirit will show you more about Jesus and more about yourself. And then the process of restoration will start and it will continue. Okay, so if you guys want that, why don't you ask God, hey, God, you know, I actually would love to be able to taste the sweetness of your word. Help me to experience that. Help me to get started. Uh, help me to just really, as I get into it, really experience your Holy Spirit working in my heart. Okay, so just take a couple minutes, and however else you feel like God is telling you to respond, you can just do that right now. Just Let's just talk to God, okay? Let's pray.